there is a lot of responsibility placed on uh, security specialists in Australia, I would say, um, which is part of the reason why we're seeing such rapid professionalization in our industry, because we have a lot of major infrastructure projects going on at the moment. Um, and these are obviously targets for a number of different uh, malicious actors. Cody Ludby, CPP, is Principal Consultant at the Tactic Group, Sydney, New Wales, Australia, where he specializes in security assurance and crowded places protection. Cody, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me. You're streaming in from Australia today, and we're going to speak about the Australian approach to protecting crowded places from terrorism. This is very interesting. It's a different approach, and I'm really interested to hear about it. Before we get into that, Tell me what some of the challenges you're currently facing as a security professional down in Australia. I know they're different in every part of the world, really. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think, you know, in Australia, it's uh, it's interesting because we are an island nation, so we don't face a, a number of the threats that you might in the US or, or Europe, for example. Um, but we are going through a, a rapid professionalization process like many other parts of the world. So uh, state governments here are getting very serious about uh, crowded places protection and counterterrorism activities. Um, and really making sure that the uh, private security industry, so consultants and engineers and uh, you know businesses that own and operate crowded places are really aware of their responsibilities. Um, so we're seeing a big push from government uh, to empower private organizations to really take the lead in counterterrorism planning uh, and making sure that we're you know hardening uh, these very vulnerable places in our communities. You've had your share of terrorist incidents, just like we all have around the world. What, uh, what shifted the government's approach to this? You know, every country is a little different. Uh, the UK, mm. they have national standards for security. The United States, no, there's 50 states that got 50 different standards for security. So it's more difficult to get people on the same page, right? What, what made the government get into this space? Because I, I think it's a great idea and I would encourage it for other people to look at. Yeah, I think there were a number of things. So obviously we had the, the rise of the Islamic State uh, in the Middle East. And in Australia, we were having a number of individuals traveling to conflict zones and getting that, you know, battlefield experience and training uh, and then returning to Australia, which was raising the ambient threat level in the country. Uh, on top of that, uh, we had the Link Cafe siege, uh, which made headlines around the world. Um, and that really was a bit of a, a call to action for the federal government to get a bit more serious about these, these types of things. Um, and then after that incident and after the in inquest to understand you know what what possibly went wrong uh, did we actually see this coming uh, and how was how did, was the response handled uh, there were a number of guidelines and strategies released uh, essentially calling for more partnership between the federal state government and then also a private industry as well so we really responded to these challenges uh, i think in a, a very unique way uh, in the sense that um, you know, there was an understanding that, you know, the government does have a responsibility to understand what the threat environment is and try and intercept these people before they do commit, you know, horrific acts against people. Uh, but at the same time, there was a recognition that the government can't do every, everything. Um, and there is a bit of an onus of responsibility on, you know, private industry to step up and, and, you know, similar to how we plan for occupational health and safety incidents, there needs to be an understanding that terrorism is something that's here to stay. And much like criminal actions, uh, we should take you know, a due diligence approach to planning for these types of incidents. I'm hearing something a little short of a partnership, but but moving that direction, is that a fair way to describe it? Uh, I would describe it pretty strongly as a partnership uh, in Australia. Oh, okay. I think um, 
We're actually quite good at um, bringing in police agencies, for example, in risk management um, activities. So when we're talking with a client and trying to plan for um, a new, um, you know, a new site or a new facility or a new crowded place, um, you know, police are, are actively involved in those processes if they're critical enough. Uh, so I'm often, you know, sitting in risk workshops talking about threat actors and getting current threat advice from police. Um, and then there's also a, a number of outreach programs at the federal level between our intelligence agencies and private private partners as well. So we do have quite a, a good um, information flow between agencies and between, you know, private organisations and the government. Obviously, some things have to stay classified and that's understandable, but when they can uh, unclassify something and share pertinent threat information, they will. Now, tell me how you guys do it differently in the crowded space, public places. You know, here there's private property, that's sacred, and people say that's your responsibility. That's not working out too well for us right now, by the way, as you can see on TV, <laughs> right? So tell us how you guys kind of uh, bridge these two gaps here and make it work together, because it seems like it's a, a better approach. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the Australian mentality generally is a bit more uh, community focused, I would say, and that kind of comes out in the security planning approach. So when I'm talking to clients, the conversation isn't always about, you know, how do we save money on security because we're not going to see a return on investment. Uh, the conversation is always, you know, what do we need to do to make this space comfortable for the people that are coming um, and how can we make them enjoy the space in a safe and secure manner? Uh, and because the conversation isn't immediately on, you know, vehicle security barriers are going to cost me X amount of dollars. How can we get rid of them? It's what's uh, a reasonable approach, what's what's credible in this environment, and what should we actually be designing for? Um, and because we we have that more free flow of threat information with you know the people that actually know about these things in much more detail than private industry ever will, it allows us to really define what is a credible incident um, and what is more likely than other terrorist incidents. So we can very specifically plan for you know, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device um, versus, uh, you know, an active armed offender incident. We can very clearly say this is more credible than that uh, based on this current threat, in threat intelligence that we've received. Um, so therefore, uh, you know, we should be focusing on these types of security interventions as opposed to these other ones. Uh, and because that conversation is much more informed with that, I suppose, partnership approach, uh, it allows us to um, be much more specific in how we're uh, planning for security incidents and we can be a bit more specific about, you know, what scenarios do we actually think are credible. Now, in my almost 40 years in law enforcement security, I have never, ever heard someone say, you know, our first consideration is not how much it costs <laughs> because it always is <laughs> your first consideration, right? So giving that, yes. giving that secret sauce there, if everybody had their way, that's how they would accomplish it, right? But not the reality of things. Tell us how you, how you work through that and how, that, how that's achieved. Mm. So, yeah, no, it's definitely not to say that cost isn't a factor. Uh, I just think, um, in my experience, at least in Australia, we find that that conversation is not the first conversation, but it's definitely the second one. Um, but really, uh, it comes down to um, being able to articulate very clearly to uh, you know the person that is holding the purse strings um, uh, what the legitimate threat is what we think is actually credible um, and based on a body of evidence this is the the likelihood and the consequence of this action and therefore these this is a reasonable you know intervention to make um, when it comes to cost that's when we can start looking at alternative measures so uh, in my gsx presentation i touched on it a little bit you know if we look at vehicle security barriers as an example 
um, you can go for a, a rated PAS 68 or an IWA rated, you know, and tested certified product. And that's going to cost you a premium because it has actually been tested. But an alternative to achieve a similar level of protection if the client is more cost orientated and is happy to take a little bit more risk, um, they might go for something that has been bespoke, engineered and designed. And rather than actually testing that product, um, they're happy to allow engineers to provide some calculations to demonstrate that you'll still meet a similar level of protection. Um, and if we're designing only for you know, a vehicle driving into a crowd, for example, as opposed to trying to exclude vehicles from a, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive perspective, um, and the client is happy to take even more risk, um, then we might go for a purely visual deterrent approach on the vehicle security strategy. So it looks like there's some robust security measures in place, but if a vehicle was to drive through them at speed, it wouldn't substantially stop the vehicle from operating. So once we've had the initial conversation to say, you know, these are the credible threats, um, these are the likely scenarios that we think could occur. Um, from there, we can then have the conversation around, okay, well, what's an acceptable risk tolerance for these actions and where does the budget align to those uh, risk interventions? Well, this is definitely a different approach to the, the application solution. Let's back up a little bit. Tell me mm. what your approach is to defining the threat because, of course, defining the threat also drives budgets and things like that. What yes. do you perceive as the, I guess, Australia's big future threat or what they're trying to guard against. What's, what, are we, what are we looking at in Australia that we might not be looking at in different places in the world? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, being an island nation, we're, we're quite lucky in that sense. Uh, we don't have, you know, uh, a significant um, arms trade, for example, that might be crossing borders from less regulated countries. Um, you know, we have quite advanced counterterrorism laws in Australia. So, you know, returning foreign fighters from overseas are more carefully managed um, and monitored. Um, and because of that, generally the threat from a terrorism perspective, at least um, in the current environment, is, you know, an inspired lone actor with very little um, capability. They might have learnt a few things online, um, watched some videos, um, and maybe communicated with a few people overseas, but they haven't actually had the practical skills and application tested in a, in a you know, a proper um, wartime environment. Um, and, you know, because of that and our strong regulations around things like um, you know, chemicals of security concern, um, the fact that we have a, a more, uh, you know, legislative and restrictive gun owner environment as well, these things really reduce the overall threat picture to one that is of generally low sophistication and it's generally of an individual nature as opposed to a, you know, a group. Uh, so it's not to say that, you know, we, we don't foresee a, a more advanced attack occurring. But generally, the, the advice is, um, you know, low sophistication, limited training and access to basic weapons. So it would be knives or, um, you know, a rifle as opposed to a handgun because handguns are more regulated in Australia. Um, or it could be a, a vehicle, for example. So these things help us, uh, I guess, exclude a lot of the more advanced threats, which would cost more money to design against. Um, but when we're seeing more technology-based approaches like, you know, using drones to... Uh, deliver small payloads of explosives, for example, then that's going to increase the the overall sophistication of the threat environment as well. So there's definitely some emerging threats that we're monitoring. Now, it seems you have more leeway as a security director executive than some other places might have, because I like this new approach, this, hey, we're going to trust you to get this right. Now, is there more pressure, though, to get it right since you are more involved in decision-making? You know, a lot of times security says, well, we'll let the police handle that. And now if you're in partnership to get it right together, you know, that uh, that can be a little pressure, right? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is a lot of responsibility placed on uh, security specialists in Australia, I would say, um, which is part of the reason why we're seeing such rapid professionalisation in our industry, because we have a lot of major infrastructure projects going on at the moment, um, and these are obviously targets for a number of different uh, malicious actors. So making, you know, very complicated risk-based decisions on um, do we design for uh, this amount of explosive payload versus a smaller amount, and do we have credible intelligence that suggests that, you know, a thousand kilo VBID is actually a legitimate credible threat, or is that way overkill? Um, you know, these types of things are very difficult. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's really about being able to express um, risk as well as you possibly can and communicate that to the real risk decision maker. Um, I think. You know, being seen as the specialist, um, we have to remember as security practitioners that we're, we're not always the ones that need to make the call, but we do have the expertise to be able to present the options. And that's really how I, I approach it. Uh, we're talking about, you know, people's lives and livelihoods when we're talking about terrorism um, and potentially a lot of dollars lost in terms of, you know, impact to the economy, et cetera. So we need to keep that in mind when we're presenting options and making sure that we're uh, presenting all options fairly uh, and presenting all the consequences as well so that people can make an informed judgment. Well said, well said, my friend. Now, if I'm going to attend Cody Lugby's session at GSX, <laughs> tell me what I'm going to walk away with. What am I, what am I going to learn that uh, might be a little different than, than your average lecturer on this topic? Yeah, I think um, the theme of that, that presentation was really about uh, remembering that you know, target hardening places is great in theory, but we need to remember that the places need to be used by people. Uh, and it can be very easy as a security person to just say, uh, no, this is a credible threat. We need to do everything to reduce the likelihood of it happening, um, but perhaps not think about the consequences in terms of, you know, the usability or uh, the, you know, the comfort that people will feel in a space. So if we think about our public squares, for example, they should be vibrant parts of a city. And yes, they're very vulnerable, but we don't want to go in and, and turn it into a fortress. So I think, you know, one of the themes is really around thinking about the people that are using the space, the legitimate users of the space, and how we can support them in using that space without being too heavy handed on the security side. Uh, and that really circles back around to that conversation about, you know, determining what is really credible uh, and being informed enough to be able to make a call that, okay, well, maybe we can, you know, reduce the overall level of protection in this area because, um, you know, we've, we've beefed it up somewhere else. So we might be reducing the overall ability to delay an offender, uh, but we know that we have a, a better response capability because we've, you know, trained for various scenarios. So balancing those different elements of deter, detect, delay, respond, um, and trying to come up with a solution that works for the space, as opposed to coming in as a, a security specialist and saying, no, we need to lock everything down. Cody Lippi, we're speaking about the Australian approach to protecting crowded spaces from terrorism. Mr. Cody, well said, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, and good luck to you. Thank you.